Last Sunday, uh, we were given the opportunity to visit uh, the mountains of North Carolina for the weekend and visit some old friends and family. It's a, a special place for uh, Julie and myself. It's where we met. We have wonderful memories there. But uh, you can't overlook the scenery. Uh, you know, you, you drive around the Blue Ridge Parkway and you just come across a magnificent sight. It just blows your mind. And, and uh, I, I took a picture of, of one of them uh, just for you uh, to see. And, and just when you see a beautiful view, uh, it kind of freezes you. It paralyzes you for just a few seconds where you're just taking in the beauty of what you see. Um, there's a moments of awe. I've shared this with many folks as they join our church to say it's good for us to have moments of awe, to have a scene, a beautiful moment, a, a, maybe a majestic or powerful thing that God is doing in your life where you just forget about all your details and you forget about yourself and you just take in the sight, whether it's a child being born, a scene or sunrise on the ocean, a beach, or maybe a view from the mountains. But can you imagine in this natural scene of, of looking at the, the vista, the, the blue mountains in front of you, that I start talking to you and say, hey, have you seen my shoes? Would you just ponder the magnificence of my shoes? And you have a reaction like that. What, what's what? You don't like my shoes? The contrast... It's startling. But if I was so insistent on you looking at my shoes, you would have several thoughts running through your head, one of which, i got to get away from this guy. <laughs> He's delusional. He's much more passionate about his shoe than I am. And now he's causing me to miss a beautiful sight. He's messed up. The thought that I would want you to know is that as we read the Word of God and we see that God's made beautiful things, God's made majestic things, God's made powerful, glorious images, and all these things that we see in nature are just little fingerprints of who He is. And, and if we are filled with all of the things that God has made, how much more are we to be in awe of who God is? And there's a reason why the Bible calls Him awesome filled with all. And the sad reality, the sad tragedy, is that we live in this world that God has made, one of which God has designed for us to be in awe of Him, living in, and just in relation to Him and that beauty of who He is. But the sad reality is, is that we go into this world and we get much more preoccupied with our shoes. We get much more preoccupied with our stuff, with our life. And it sounds so important to us because, frankly, we're the most important thing that we know. I mean, what could be better than talking and being concerned about us? And that sounds great until you see there's a God who's made things so much bigger than us, who's made the expanses of the universe, the beauty of the mountains. That's what sin is is that we take this world that God has made and we make it about our fears, our desires, our hopes, our pride, 
our reputation, and it all becomes about us. And it doesn't matter how little it is, it still reflects the same attitude. I mean, even if I just made one sentence, look at my shoes, and just went on with it. It's still messed up. Because it's in relation to something so beautiful. Even just one little sin is messed up because we are before a holy God that is beautiful, majestic, wonderful, of which all that this world is to be about. Jonathan Edwards said it this way, that the slightest sin has an infinite hatefulness in it, so that even the smallest sin outweighs the greatest loveliness in the Creator. How can that be? Because of who God is. I mean, it's one thing for me to tell you something and you disregard it. No big deal. But when the Holy God says something simple to do and we don't do it, the heinous of the sin is not in the act that you did, but to whom you did it against. And so that's why we see things in the Old Testament where someone touched an ark and then he died. And you're like, whoa, God, you know, that seems a little severe. The problem is that we're just looking at the act and we're not seeing to whom the sin is against. Against God. So, I want to take some time for the next few weeks to talk about obedience. And especially the Ten Commandments. How do you know when you're focused on the insignificant? How do you know when you're living life for yourself, for pride and not for God? Well, that's why the Ten Commandments are given. The Ten Commandments give you a beautiful picture, or maybe a hard, vivid picture, of how we are stepping away from a God-centered life to a self-centered life. We've been talking for the last seven months about Galatians, and we've learned some beautiful things about that, about how we are saved by the grace of God, and that the gospel is filled with His grace, and that we're not great because we do great things. We're great because of the great God that gives us great grace and love and brings us to be with Him. And we've learned there's no second-class Christians because of some measure of law-abiding that we do. That we all come in on the same grounds and that we are sinners and we need the grace of God and He gives it to us gracefully. And then how the Spirit of God comes into our life and the Spirit of God is the work of God bearing the fruit of His life and it changes us and works on the inside out that we become vessels of God's love to give love to others. And, and that, I'm, I'm just honest, I, I miss Galatians already. I love Galatians, and I'm going to find a way to bring it out. And so I want to look at the law of God. I want to look at the Ten Commandments from grace-filled eyes. What does the Ten Commandments mean today? If I'm not saved by the law of God, then why do we have the law of God? What's the point? So, I think to make this transition, let's go to Galatians chapter 3, verse 19. And we're going to read this for just a little bit. And then we're going to go to Exodus. Imagine that. So, Galatians 3. And I've, I've got several passages that I'm going to read it to you, so it's not going to be your typical uh, one text that we usually do. Uh, Galatians 3, verse 19 through 26. And, and Galatians 2, at the end, he's already said, in way of, of sharing a story of how he confronted Peter uh, to his face, Paul rebuked him and said, This is why I'm rebuking you, because you are a Jew, but you're acting like a Gentile, but you're asking the Jews to act like Jews. And you know that it's not by acting like a Jew that you get right with God. And so uh, he says in Galatians chapter 2, verse 16, you know that a person is not justified by the works of law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. 
So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ, not by the works of law, because by works of law, no one would be justified. And so, makes that to Galatians 3, the next chapter, verse 10, For all who rely on the works of law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide all things written in the book of law and do them. So in other words, if you read the Ten Commandments wrong, you're going to be cursed. So my challenge is let's make sure we read the Ten Commandments right so that we're not cursed. Uh, so if we're relying on it, we'll be cursed. Verse 11 now is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. So this tells us the law is not helping us to look good before God. Because think about it. What if in that same moment in that mountain, I'm asking you to look at me? Check, you know, instead of my shoes, check out my muscles, you know? What if we're before God and we say, God, hey, get, look at my, my religious muscles. Look at how I work the law. Look at me, God. You see how we're still asking God, look at me and making God serve me because of our religion. And we're trying to do it in such a way that God's impressed and it's not working. It's not working. And so that's why the scripture says it. It's, you're not justified by the law, but by faith. Faith that, God, you are so great. You're so gracious. You're so merciful, so forgiving. Look at what you did for me on the cross. And so we're looking at him instead of God looking at us. Christ redeemed us from the curse of law by becoming a curse for us. For it's written, curses everyone who's hanged on a tree. So we go on down to verse 19. So why then the law? That's a good question. What's the point? One, it was added because of transgressions. So it speaks to us and tells us how heinous our selfishness is. It's one thing to say, yeah, I'm selfish. But what if I say to you, I'm selfish because I've seen that I have other guys before God. I've seen that I have graven image, that I worship His creation. I've seen that I disregard Him uh, and how I spend my time in the Sabbath day, I disregard his truth and tell lies frequently. I disregard his instructions for marriage, and I, there's adultery that's in my heart and in my life, and, and I you know, don't really regard life at all. In fact, I hate a lot of folks, and I murder them. Yeah, man, how is that different than just saying I'm selfish? Selfish is, is a refined statement, isn't it? Because who's going to deny that? Yeah, okay, I'm selfish too. <laughs> but what the Ten Commandments does is... It says, uh, let's take the refining away and let me just show you raw selfishness. It looks like murder. It looks like lying. It looks like greed and coveting. It looks like adultery. And, and so it's given to us because of our transgressions in verse 19. Until the offspring should come to whom the promise has been made, which is Jesus, and was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. It's the law contrary to the promises of God. Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. What he's saying is that law was never given for the purpose of justifying. It was never given that you will have eternal life, that you could have hope in the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. And so it hemmed me in in sin, so I know exactly where I'm at, and it limits the extent of our sin. What if God just said, don't be selfish? 
That's all he said. And we would have all these degrees of selfishness and, and we would go all out. And when God says, you know what? Selfishness needs to be stopped at the line of murder. Selfishness needs to be stopped at the line of covenant. He gives us a guardrail to say, this is, this is too far. This is destructive to life. And so we, we keep on reading. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then law was our guardian. Uh, and in a sense, it's kind of like this, this warden. And so the law protects me from sin, but law also protects me from the damage that I can do to myself. I, we had um, borrowed a, uh, a rooster. I, I didn't really borrow it. Someone asked if they could keep a rooster in our dog pen. I was always kind of, we have no dog in the dog pen because my neighbors flat out adopted our dog. Um, and so I said, sure. I was kind of curious about having chickens anyway. And, and a rooster does what roosters do at 6 in the morning. And every five minutes, I thought 6 is fine, but every five minutes is not. Uh, and so there are roosters crowing and stuff. And, but the, my dog does have a penchant toward chickens, evidently. Um, and so this, the, the rooster got out. And the dog chased him, and there was feathers in our yard. Um, the rooster got away, but you know, the dog pinned him down, didn't know what to do with him after that. Uh, and so we needed to have the rooster back in to protect the rooster from the dogs around. And so the law serves as something that is a protective device in our soul and our spirit to keep us from the ravages of sin. There's that this role that the law does in Galatians 3. But then it serves as this guardian, this pedagogue, this one who's watching over until Christ comes in order that we might be justified by the law. And so we find here that the law actually serves as a guardian that brings us to Christ. Brings us to Christ and helps us through when we see Christ, we understand our need because we've been crushed by the law and we need a Savior. So, with that being said, having that transition, I want us to go uh, to Exodus chapter 19. You say, well, Pastor, I don't think the Ten Commandments are in Exodus 19. No, they're not. They're in Exodus 20. Um, but I, I think that our goal is to read the Ten Commandments rightly so that we're not under curse. So let's read the chapter before, get the context of when the Ten Commandments come in Exodus 20. It's interesting to note, in Exodus 20, this mentioning that you have here is actually God speaking to the people. Um, later on, they get recorded down in the Ten Commandments, broken and then re-recorded again. But this is actually God speaking to the people in Exodus 20. So, what's the setting? Of course, people of Israel have been set free from the slavery of Egypt. God working through the plagues, through Moses. And he's taken them out of that area. And they're now at Mount Sinai, the place God said would ha they would happen. That's, they're going to come here. He prophesied to, to Moses, you're going to bring them here. And they're there now. So, I'm just going to read this whole chapter here. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on the day they came into the wilderness of Sinai, they set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain. While Moses went up to God, the Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings, and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, 
You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all the words that the Lord had commanded him. And all the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear what I speak to you and may also believe you forever. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the Lord, and they washed the garments. And he said to the people, Be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain, a very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain. The Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. The Lord said to Moses, Go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord to look, and many of them perish. Also let the priests who come near the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you yourself warned us, saying, Set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, Go down and come up bringing Aaron with you. But do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he broke out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. And then, chapter 20, you get these commands that are going on, and then they actually go much further than the Ten Commands, uh, with Moses going up and, and getting this information and passing it down. So, as we look at this passage in Exodus 19, you need to understand that the law itself is an expression of grace. Sometimes we think law, grace, law, grace. But the law itself was a graceful thing that God provided for us, his people. So it's not just something that we contrast with one another. So let's look first at the definition of obedience. Because in all this, basically what you're having God tell his people is, obey me, obey me. What is the point of obedience if we're saved by grace? I was reflecting on Galatians chapter 2, where it says that it's not by the working of law that we're saved. And I, and then I was looking at the work of law, and the number one law is have no other God before me, where Jesus said, love him with all your heart. And I think, okay, so by not ha if I have the God before me, before all the gods, if I love him, that's not what saves me. I'm not saved by worshiping God. I'm not, sa I'm not saved... By making God Lord. And that's kind of a... I had to step back on that. Because I've always emphasized that being a believer is making Christ Lord. All right? But when I look at Galatians 2, it tells me I'm not saved by making Him Lord. I'm saved to make Him Lord. 
I'm saved in order to worship God. I'm saved in order to obey Him. And so what is this, this definition of obedience? If I was going to say, you've got to obey me, what am I asking you to do? I'm asking you to submit your will to another's will. Let that will, as uh, one person said, let that will be crossed. Let your will be crossed by God. If uh, I would say to my wife or to my family and say, y'all need to obey me, and said, we obey you all the time. But they really just agree with me. Is that the same thing? Agreeing and obeying? Does it seem inherent within the definition of submitting is that there will be times and moments when I don't agree. But I'm going to let that will be crossed over mine, believing that that will is more important than mine. God is asking, He's asking us to let our will be crossed when He says, I want you to obey me in this passage. Now, that sounds Ugly. I, I think about that. There's a commercial, fiber commercial. You know, send this fiber one or something like that, where the you know, got, wife's trying to get him to eat fiber, and, and the guy says, I, I don't want to eat fiber. It makes me sad. <laughs> it's, like, it's like, what? What's fiber make you sad? I, I think that uh, we read obedience, though, and we kind of have that same attitude, don't we? I, I don't want obedience. Obedience makes me sad. Don't, don't, don't make me do that. We practice obedience in our life. We practice having our will crossed. In the physical realm, we get that. There is, Proverbs says it this way, there's a way that seems right to me, but the end leads to death. There's all types of things that I see in my day that I sense and I want to do in my life that if I allow it to follow its course, I'll die. But physically, we understand that if we want to have some vitality in our, in our body, we want to have some energy in our body, we want to be in shape, in some good shape, we have to let our will be crossed. I mean, when you wake up in the morning and the, and the alarm's going off or your child's knocking on your head, you know, <laughs> there's a real desire to stay in bed. I, that feels good. This seems right. It seems wrong for me to get up and help you. Or it seems wrong for me. It's dark outside, really. You know, I, that, that seems right to stay in bed. But physically, if you know that you've got to do some exercises, sometimes you've got to say, you know, that's my will, but I'm going to cross that will, and I'm going to go and run, ride a bike, do push-ups, do whatever the exercise that in the midst of doing it, it hurts, and you're thinking, okay, I'm ready to stop, but no... And what's funny is that we actually pay people to do this for us, don't we? we? We pay them good money for them to cross our will. And we're sitting there and we're trying to do exercise and they say, no, you need to do five more reps. And you're like, but it hurts. I don't care. And he starts screaming at you and he yelling at me. You think, oh man, they did a good job. <laughs> what are they doing? They're crossing your will, aren't they? And, and you get that. You understand that you... That, left unto your own devices, it leads you to maybe uh, uh, just a blob, physically. And, and you realize that just following your own desires, that though they seem right to make you feel good, they will end in a bad way, death. And so physically, we understand that we need someone coming in telling us what to do, and we pay them, we allow them to cross our will physically. 
But it's amazing how it only applies to the physical and maybe work and finances. But it comes to our moral life, come to our spiritual life. Who are you to judge? Who are you to judge? I don't need you telling me what to do. I, and we reject any kind of person of authority or any kind of sense of authority that says this is the right way, even though we feel like it ought to be another way. Isn't that funny how that happens? What God is asking when He gives the Ten Commandments and the definition of obedience is let me cross your will. Let me have place in your life to cross your will. It's, it's fascinating. As we look at society today, it, we'll have, you know what, I don't believe there really is a God. Maybe, maybe not. But either way, the end result is I get to decide my own values. And then there are others who say, well, God's everywhere. I mean, we just got to be sincere in what you believe. and just He's everywhere in any way you want to go. And the end result's still the same. I get to make the call on how I live spiritually, morally. And so the end result, the greatest sin, the greatest sin that our society knows is not have no other guys before me, but the greatest sin is not to do what seems right for you to do. That's the greatest sin today, isn't it? And so we read the Ten Commandments. And we have no room for someone with moral authority in their life. And what God is asking is, let me cross your will. First John chapter 2, verse 1-6 through 6 says it this way, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He's the propitiation for our sins, not for ours only, but also for the sins of the world. And by this we know that we have come to know Him if we keep his commandments, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may be sure that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. News verse 7 and 8 of our text in Exodus 19. You've got First John saying, this is how you know God. This is how you love. There's going to be obedience. There's going to be this completion that's done by obeying Him. Let God cross your will. So verse 7 and 8, Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all the words the Lord had commanded them. And all the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. They were saying, as a nation... As individuals, God, you can cross our will. You can decide for us when we don't want to do that, and we'll do it anyway. Perhaps there needs to be that statement in our life. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 24, Moses gives commentary on this law. Interesting, in this passage, he says, When your sons ask you in time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rule that the Lord our God has commanded you? Then you shall say to your son, we were fair slaves in Egypt. The Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. The Lord showed signs and wonders great and grievous against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. And he brought us out from there that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give to our fathers. And the Lord, the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes to fear the Lord our God. Now listen to this. For our good always, that he might preserve us alive as we are this day. These commandments were given to them out of slavery. You need to understand that when God crosses your will, it's for your good. The greatest good that you can have is to know God. It's for you to live and the life that He designed not to be in awe of silly, frivolous things like shoes that will not outlast the tomb, but to give your life centered on the greatest being ever in God. That is for your good. 
Now let's talk about, we're talking about the definition of obedience. It's simply letting God cross our will. It's not merely agreeing with Him. Alright? Submission, obedience implies that there will be times in your life when you see something as a silly idea, you have no good reason to do it, other than God told you to do it. But you know what? That glorifies God, doesn't it? Otherwise, it just glorifies your reason, glorifies yourself. Yeah, I want to do this. But no, I have no reason to do it, but God has asked me to do it. In fact, I can think of a lot of reasons not to, but they all pale in comparison to who God is. So what's the reason for obedience? We looked at the definition of obedience. What's the reason for obedience? And notice Exodus 19, verse 4 and 5 here. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Get this, God has already saved them out of Egypt. All right? He's already set them free of the Egyptian slavery. It's already done. Past tense. Verse 5. Now, therefore, if you indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant. Notice that? Why are they obeying him? Because of what God has already done. It doesn't say, if you obey me, then I will set you free from Egypt. That's not what it says. That's what religion says. If you do these things, then God will lift you up. But instead, God says, no, I've already did these things. Now, therefore, obey. That order makes all the world of a difference. It makes all the turning of a difference. In some ways, this is kind of symbolic of what God did in setting people them free from Egypt is kind of like what God did for us on the cross and setting us free from the penalty of sin. He says, now therefore obey. Obedience, just like we learned in Galatians, is not what justifies us. It's what God does that sets us free and forgives us of sin. And now notice what else happens here. Verse 5, now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. No. He says, all the earth is mine. In other words, everything belongs to me. But if you obey me, then you have a special category. You're my treasure. What God is saying here is that if you obey me, we enter into a special relationship. What's the point of obedience? The point of obedience is not your justification, not so that you will be well before God as a judge, but is the point of it is that you are his son and that you are in a relationship with Him, and that you obey because of that relationship. It has everything to do with your relationship with God. Now, think about this. What's the difference between loving someone and using someone? What's the difference between loving someone and using someone? If I'm going to use a microphone... I don't really care what the microphone wants because the microphone doesn't want anything. It's just an object, right? I just utilize it for my desires. I say, microphone, stay right there. Amplify my voice. With help of some others, that's exactly what it does. There's nothing demanded of me from the microphone. The microphone has no will. When we use people, we make them like an object, don't we? I don't really care what you want. You're here to meet my needs, to do what I want. Do that. Be that, and I will manipulate any way I need to to make sure my desires get done. I think most of us would understand that's not love. That's using people. It's manipulation. Love 
is not dealing with objects, but dealing with subjects. People who have a will. And so because I enter into a relationship, I learn what their desires are, I learn what their needs are, what their hopes are, and because of a love, there grows with it not just intimacy, but there also grows with it obligation, doesn't it? There's obligation that comes with love. That because I love, I will meet the needs of this person. And in fact, I will sacrifice my own needs to make sure their needs are met. Isn't that how relationships work? And if you don't do that, don't you see how love tends to go away? Because there's not this mutual interdependence on one another. God calls us into a love relationship. He says, I want you to be my special treasured possession. I want you to be related to me. Which means there's obligation that comes with love. Because I love God... I will consider who He is. And I will relate and adjust to who He is. And so you ask that question, you think, well, okay, fine. I get that. He's God after all. But it seems like there's more giving here. I'm giving. I'm obeying. I'm doing all these things. And God's asking me to do these things. And I'm the one conforming to Him. What's God doing? (laughs) Let me share with you. You will never out-love and out-give God and what He's already done. As you grow in your relationship with God and your love with Him, you learn what He does and the things that He asks of you to do and the things that you become vulnerable in and all the things that He says, give it up, give it up, do this, do that, do this, and you're thinking, I am totally vulnerable before God and I'm totally at the whim of who God is and He can take me somewhere and I can get ripped apart and it's totally on God because He's placed me there, but I'm vulnerable to Him. Let me just share with you, you will never be more vulnerable, never be more vulnerable than Jesus already was when He came. God becoming a man sent to us and we ripped Him to shreds. We'll never be more vulnerable than what God has done. And so let me just share with you that when you enter into a love relationship with God, though He asks you to give all of your future, your family, your children, your past, and say, put them here on my hands and let me take care of them, let me do with them as I will, though we spend our life doing that, we will never, ever be more vulnerable than what God has already been. We get still a bargain. When we exchange our life for the life of Christ, it's still a huge bargain bargain. The purpose of obedience is not that they will be saved. God has already done that. But that there will be a treasured possession among all the people that they will grow in this intimacy, this relationship. George MacDonald said that the theme of hell is, I am my own. And we get exactly that. When we think that our life is all about ourselves, God gives you that. And you realize it's nothing but dirty shoes that's left him. And that doesn't even last. What you pursue most shows what you prize most. God's pursued us. He says, I want you to be a treasured possession. But will we pursue him? If we pursue him, it's showing that we prize him more than the stuff of this earth. And here's the thing. As we read the Ten Commandments, it tells us 
it tells us, it reveals to us, exposes our heart what we are pursuing more than God. And I'm going to tell you, as we go through the Ten Commandments, not one of us is going to get out of this unscathed. All right? Let's be prepared. It's going to expose you. It's going to reveal your heart. And you're going to realize that every single one of you came in bringing your gods with you. You put before God. In fact, from the second commandment on down, it's elaborating what our different gods are and how to put God before those things. So, the reason for obedience. Now, the guide for obedience. It starts with God. 1 Peter 1.15, but it says, He who called you is holy, you also be holy in your conduct. God starts it, reveals it, we respond to Him. 1 John 3.3, everyone who has this hope in Him purifies himself as he is pure as we see who God is we have this hope we want to be like him and we make this something we pursue Ephesians 5 1 therefore be imitators of God as beloved children God is our guide how do we know who God is though what is the guide for obedience it's his word notice in Exodus chapter 20 verse 1 after he he gets this this um, this desire from the people that they will obey him they see this <laughs> Terrifying uh, natural scene where God's there. Verse 1, chapter 20, and God spoke all these words saying. And you go on and you read all the Ten Commandments. Verse 22 of chapter 20, he says, And the Lord said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the people of Israel, You've seen for yourselves that I have talked with you from heaven. Now, what's the guide? What's the guide for obedience? It is the word of God. And so we keep on reading John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God, the same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, without Him was not anything made that was made. Here we have this beautiful, majestic, creating God says, I have revealed myself, and in John 1 says, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. The glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is the manifestation of God. He reveals Himself, His character. How do we know anything about Jesus? Well, Jesus said, I am the fulfillment of the law in Matthew chapter 5. All the law comes in and says, you want to see who I am? You look at the law, I fulfill that. And we read from Genesis to Revelation, it all points to the same Messiah who would come and reveal God to us. Emmanuel, God with us. What is the guide for obedience? I'm going to share with you that it's nothing other than the Word of God. 1 John 2, 5, whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. I'm completed. <laughs> I... Think about that uh, Jerry Maguire movie, you know. You complete me. Um, a girl doesn't complete a guy. And a guy doesn't complete a girl. When I read 1 John chapter 2, verse 5, the love of God completes you. Obedience completes you. Say to God, you complete me. And don't put a person up where God belongs. Obey Him. Truly love God is perfected in those who keep his word. By this we may be sure that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in me ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. What's the guide for obedience? It is nothing but the word of God. Where do I find his will? It's revealed to us in the scripture. Romans chapter 12 verse 1 and 2 says that we are to be conformed by the word of God. It has his power within us. In 2 Timothy 3.16 all scripture is given God breathed by God. It's given that we will be perfect, thoroughly finished into all good works. This is the Word of God. Now here's, here's the thing that's dangerous. When we say, okay, but what part? 
What part of God's Word? I mean, I want a guide, but which part? Maybe the Gospel is everything written in red, what Jesus said. New Testament, maybe. Surely not the Old Testament. Pastor, why are you spending time in Exodus 20? When we take the Word of God and we say it's not all the Word of God, I'm going to ask, by what standard? How do you know? By what standard are you saying that? What, what are you judging the Word of God by for you to be able to say that it's not all God's Word? There has to be something. Is it your experience? Is it your reason? What, there, when you say, I can't take all the Word of God, there's only parts of it because there's other parts that I judge. Then you are taking the Word of God and instead of the Word of God judging you, you to judge the Word of God. And let me just ask, well, by what basis does anyone cross your will anymore? By what basis does anyone cross your will? Because now... All that you're doing is a, not obeying, but you're agreeing. You're saying, I like what that has to say, of what God's having to say, and I agree with that, and so I will do that. Are we really bringing up our discernment, our experience, our reason, as the, the sure authority for deciding what God's will is and judging of the Bible? Either your experience and judgment sits in evaluation of the Bible, or the Bible sits in evaluation of your experience and judgment. Which one will it be? And so we'll read things and say, well, Pastor, have you read the Bible? I mean, the, the Bible says you shouldn't mix textiles and wear them. You don't wear cotton and other things. The Bible says you shouldn't eat barbecue. <laughs> well, some folks there. <laughs> you know, the Bible says that we shouldn't be doing certain things on, on Saturday. And I worked pretty hard yesterday. What? What part of the Bible? You say no, all of it? Let me just talk about the law here. The law is given in three purposes. The things like the mixing of textiles and things like that. We'll find that there is a law that is fit for ceremonial purposes that has to do with ceremonials, rituals, sacrifices, and feasts that point to Jesus Christ. And when Jesus Christ came, the type came, and the, and the symbolic is done away with. There is no need anymore to prepare ourselves for the various feasts because Jesus is the fulfillment of the feast. Then there's laws that deal with the nation of Israel, the civil laws, um, it, enlightening to see how God does justice in, in, a, in a human government. But honestly... I'm not part of the nation of Israel, that social uh, class. And it no longer is applying to the nations of the world. It was given for a specific purpose, to deal with that nation. But then there are what we call revelatory laws, things that reveal the moral character of who God is. The things like what we see here in the Ten Commandments. What this does, it reveals the God of the law. So though I may not be subject to the law for my justification, I am subject to the God of that law. I learn about who He is and the character of Him. And so when I read the Ten Commandments, it gives me a picture of what God is like, who He is like, what my heart 
is like. And the difference between the two. And as I read this, I find that it crushes me. It crushes me. Because I don't match up to who God is. So let's look, let's look at the atmosphere of obedience. The atmosphere of obedience. What do I mean by this? Well, in Exodus 20, we got the law given. You got a lot more details given out. That's recorded for them uh, on the Ten Commandments, or the Ten, uh, those two tablets of stone. But even, even before Moses comes down and gives in writing what they had already heard on the mountain, even before that happens, the people of Israel break them all. Break them all. In fact, God has to notify Moses. Hey, Moses, this is great and all. You need to go down because the people are breaking the covenant. Even before the covenant was ratified, even before it was given to them in writing, they had already messed it up. So if you go to Exodus 34, it's interesting. They, if you were talking technicalities, rightfully could have been destroyed and annihilated at that moment. And God would have been totally just to do so. But Exodus 34, Moses intercedes because of the intercession, God working through that, the nation's saved, they're not all wiped out. God orders Moses, cut for yourself now, establish a stone and write the commandments that I've given to you. Verse 4, So Moses cut the two tablets of stone like the first, and he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him, and took his hand, two tablets of stone, and the Lord descended the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, this is the, the Jehovah title, The Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children, and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So even in the giving of the law, it is wrath and the mercy of God that even before it is given to them, written down, they're breaking all the Ten Commandments, and God comes, gives them another set, and says, I am so merciful to you. I am so gracious to you. I am slow to anger. I abound in this love and faithfulness. I will love you still. And you see mercy and forgiveness and the law. So the question is, how could God be just and do that? When God made this statement, He was looking to a time in the future when Jesus would come and become that curse. Jesus became the curse became the sin of them in an orgy worshiping an idol or a calf. Jesus became that, became the curse of what those people were doing. Jesus became that and because of it, he faced the full wrath of God. What God said, no, I really justly could put this on all the nation of Israel. Instead, he looks to a time when he places it on Jesus Christ and he put your sin on that too. So that's why First John chapter 2 my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we also have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation. In other words, He is satisfying the wrath of God, His just wrath 
for my sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of this world. And so 1 John 1, 9 says that if we confess our sins, He is faithful and merciful to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all righteousness. It's not what it says, is it? Faithful and just. How is God just to forgive us our sin? Because He is propitiation that as I sin, as I mess up, God knowing who I am, Jesus is before God the Father and says, See, Jared, He doesn't even realize anything He's sinned yet. He is sinning. He is doing great danger or great uh, damage to the holiness of who you are. He's living for Himself. He's caring more about shoes than the awesome majesty, power of who you are, the beauty of who you are. He's, he's doing this. He's, he's God, I know that it would been something you could do is, is destroy Him forever. But that wouldn't be just. Because I already paid a sacrifice for that sin. And you're not going to demand two atoning sacrifices for the same sin. God the Father, it is just. It is just for you to declare Jared forgiven and right with you. <laughs> you get that? It is just. It is right for God to say you are forgiven and you have no sin and you have the righteousness of Jesus Christ on your life. And Jesus is before the Father as our advocate so that if anyone sins, He is continually pleading on our behalf. So when I read the Ten Commandments, I read it and I know that there is a moment of time when it hit me in my life, God, I have been a hypocrite. I have been treasonous against the character of who you are. I have been living for myself. I have cared nothing about you. And I have lived all things about my reputation. And I realized the sin of that. And as a 14-year-old, I was crushed in my knees. And my, my charade was no more because I realized it wasn't working before Him. And that I was guilty. And that if God was to come at that moment, if I was to die at that moment, that the only right, good thing to be done was for me to be banished from His presence into hell. And it hit me with full force. The law hit me. I was convicted of my sin. And I fell on my knees with tears in my eyes. I said, God, I'm tired of being a hypocrite. Forgive me. I appeal to Jesus Christ and His cross. And I walked and somewhere between getting bent and on the ground, God said, you're right. You're just. You're a child of mine. You are my treasured possession. Walk like it now. And so why do I obey? Not because of being saved or not because of hope of justification. It's done. I obey now because of love. The love of Christ compels us. Let's pray.